Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, and I want to welcome you to our July Conservative Women's Network. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner, our partner in these uh, from the Heritage Foundation for nearly 20 years. We had a wonderful reception last week up on the roof to celebrate almost 20 years of Conservative Women's Network, and we've been uh, running some photos from that as well as some other CWN uh, slides here on the screens as you enter. But I wanted to say thank you again to Bridget and the Heritage Foundation for a wonderful reception. What a gorgeous facility they have there up on the roof, and it was just the most beautiful evening. Thank you so much. Today I'm pleased to introduce our July CWN speaker, Joyce Lee Malcolm. I should have known of you, Joyce, but honestly, I didn't know of your work until I was reading National Review Magazine a couple of months ago, and it was an article with this photo titled, The Nice Girl Who Saved the Second Amendment. <laughs> I confess it was the photo that pulled me in. She's making this luxurious gesture here. Uh, but it was an article that explained how her writings and her scholarship helped make it possible for the Supreme Court's Heller decision, which recognized an individual's right to possess a firearm, and I think this is our 10th anniversary of Heller this year. Her work was cited several times in the decision, which was called District of Columbia versus Heller. In the National Review article, Joyce is quoted as saying, people used to say, how did a nice girl like you get into a subject like this? But she said, I'm not asked that anymore. Maybe they don't think I'm a nice girl. Of course you are. <laughs> She's the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at Antonio Scalia Law School at George Mason University. She's a historian and a constitutional scholar active in the area of constitutional history, focusing on the development of individual rights in Great Britain and America. And she told me her favorite course that she teaches is called War and Law. Wouldn't that be a great course to take? She's written many books and articles on gun control, on the Second Amendment, and individual rights. And here's one book that I'm reading called To Keep and Bear Arms, The Origins of an Anglo-American Right. I recommend this to you all. She previously taught at Princeton University, at Bentley College, at Boston University, at Northeastern University, and Cambridge University also was a senior advisor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Security Studies Program, a visiting scholar at Massachusetts Center for Renaissance Studies, and is a bi-fellow at Robinson College, Cambridge University. Then, a couple of weeks ago, I knew you were coming, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal on the weekend. They have this neat little section where an expert uh, on a subject recommends their favorite books on it. So here it was. The Five Best Books on Treason <laughs> by Joyce Lee Malcolm. The, and it said she was the author of the most recent, uh, most recent book, The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold's. So I ordered it. And what a fabulous book. I can only recommend this very, very highly to you. I knew that Benedict Arnold was a traitor, but that's all I knew. And reading the story of his life and getting a deeper understanding of all that was going on in the country during his life. It's truly fascinating. So it's not her topic today, but I want to recommend it to you as a really good read about early America and a great patriot, how he betrayed his country and went to the dark side. 
She's written many essays in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, USA Today, the Boston Globe, and many other newspapers. Joyce has three children, two sons and a daughter. It's a writing family. Her son, one of her sons won the Pulitzer Prize for his writing uh, uh, for a Wisconsin newspaper. In her spare time, she likes to walk her dog, she likes to travel, and she loves rare books. Today, she's going to talk to us about women and self-defense, the right to be armed. Please join me in welcoming Joyce Lee Malcolm. Thank you very much, Michelle, for that wonderful introduction, and thank you for inviting me to, to come here. Um, that um, nice girl saying, <laughs> when I, uh, there are two reasons, uh, apart from the fact that they might not think I'm nice anymore, um, why I think that it, no one is asking, um, and that is because um, I think that for one reason that um, maybe the subject is okay now. Uh, and I'd love to think that, that it isn't an, you know, an unpleasant subject. And the other is that it should be of a particular interest to women because for women, being able to protect yourself is really, really important. And while you can have a right to self-defense, if you don't have a right to some implement to help you with that defense, um, it, it is pretty meaningless. Um, anyway, um, I'm looking forward to speaking to you, um, and I will just go kind of quickly through this, but um, I'd be happy to answer any questions if your stomachs can hold up. <laughs> um, First, um, the um, right to be armed is, uh, self-defense is the primary law of nature. And it's a Blackstone who is sort of the leading um, jurist, the British jurist on individual rights and who wrote a book on commentaries on the laws of England just at the time of, the revol of our revolution, said that self-defense, as it is justly called the primary law of nature, so it is not neither can it be, in fact, taken away by the law of society. The law respects the passions of the human mind and makes it lawful in him to do himself that immediate justice to which he is prompted by nature and which no prudential motives are strong enough to restrain. It considers the future process of law by no means an adequate remedy for injuries accompanied by force. Um, I was writing on this subject um, back in the, actually in the 80s, and when it was, as uh, one of my friends, uh, Randy Barnett at, at Georgetown said, was not a cool subject, obviously. Um, in 2002, uh, a man named Amitai Etzioni, who is a commutarian, um, and, uh, wrote an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education called, um, Are Liberal Scholars Acting Irresponsibly on Gun Control? And I'm the only one he mentioned by name. He's, he said that if you actually did the work and found that, that the right to be armed in the Second Amendment was an individual right as opposed to just a right for people in the militia to have guns within the militia, you found that it was an individual right. You actually had a right and a responsibility to keep that information to yourself. And he compared um, pointing out that the Second Amendment was an individual right to um, a web demonstration of how to make Ebola virus in your kitchen sink. <laughs> the, the whole thing was so preposterous that I, I did not um, respond. Um, but um, there was this very strong, and has been, it continues to be a sense that there really isn't an individual right 
Uh, it's only a collective right for everybody, but not an individual right for any one person. Um, the people who claim that feel that you don't any longer need an individual right to be armed because the government will protect you. And I add, oops, this is all wrong here, backwards. I try to, okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm going in the wrong direction, sorry about that. How did a nice girl like you get interested in a subject like this? There's a cartoon, and I'm not sure that you can read it, and it says, this house protected by a Second Amendment scholar, which I love. Um, and here's Blackstone's comment about self-defense, justly called the primary law of nature. It really is something sort of inherent in us. Um, some people say that there, there's a sort of religious sense that you were created in God's image, and therefore you should be able to protect yourself. In the, uh, also, of course, there's a requirement and a sense that you want to protect your family uh, and your loved ones and your neighbors. Um, and the law is not going to be there in time to help you in your moment of need. Um, can the government, will the government protect you, and can it? Um, and I'd just like to draw your attention to um, a particular case also from the District of Columbia called Warren versus the District of Columbia, 1981. Um, in this case, there were three women who were sharing a townhouse on Capitol Hill. Um, Two men broke in downstairs, and there was one of the women was downstairs. The other two were upstairs. And the two upstairs heard her screaming, and they called 911. They continued to call 911 for more than half an hour. Nobody ever came. When the screaming stopped, they thought some, that maybe someone had come or that whoever was attacking her had left. So they went downstairs, and the two men who were attacking her were still there. And they proceeded for the next 14 hours to abuse these three women. I shouldn't say no one ever came. There was a police car, apparently, that drove by the house but never bothered to come in to see if anything was happening. So these women sued the District of Columbia and the police department because they were not being protected. Um, the uh, response of the judge in, the, uh, in this case was, as you can see at the bottom here, the duty to provide public service is owed to the public at large, everyone, but absent a special relationship, whatever that is, between the police and an individual, no specific legal duty exists. In other words, everybody is entitled to protection, but no one person is entitled to protection. And so these women lost their case. And apparently, according to the judge, this was the sort of the traditional government view about government servants, that they cannot be sued uh, for not protecting an individual citizen. There are a lot of issues about how women can protect themselves, and particularly for battered women, people who get restraining orders, um, and some 4,000 women a year die at the hands of their abusers. Restraining orders are not that much help because the police are not always there when somebody is about to come, um, and um, the women are usually unarmed. And I should say, and I don't want to take too much extra time, but um, a couple of years ago, there was a hearing um, in the Senate on um, defense against uh, violence. Violent, how, I'm forgetting the exact name. Vi yes, the Violence Against Women's Act. Thank you. And they called me up, um, the committee, to ask if I would come and talk because the problem was that the, the change to that law was going to allow 
the police to simply take away any weapons that the man uh, had without any notice. And afterwards, he could claim to get them back. So I was really there to talk about due process, that if before somebody takes something from you, you should have a right to make a statement. And um, I went to the, the room we were supposed to be at, and apparently there were so many people they had moved to a larger room. And here was this huge crowd of women from SAVE and other, <laughs> other organizations who were very intent on women not being armed, but being able to get this, you know, whoever might be threatening them disarmed. Um, and they all sat behind me as I testified, <laughs> which is a really was a kind of unnerving situation. Um, but uh, the fa at, when one of them, a couple, mentioned the fact that women had had restraining orders and yet something had ha bad happened to them, and it was my turn to talk, I said, well, if they had been armed, maybe they would have been prepared and could have protected themselves. At any rate, um, there's also the Brady campaign, which used to be handgun contr uh, control. And their view is that you don't need a gun because probably it'd be taken from you and you would be worse off if you had it. And as um, Pete Shield said, um, and you can see on that slide, uh, that, get, get it, um, that actually uh, you're much more likely to, uh, if you, to put up no defense, you'll be better off. If you put up a defense, you'll be severely injured. So basically, they're telling women, you know, don't need to do anything. You're, you know, you're safer if you just, just sit there or lie there. And the Guardian newspaper uh, in Britain uh, had a charity caring for rape victims warned yesterday uh, in this in their article um, that it, sometimes it's far better just let it happen and then deal with the aftermath. Um, they were annoyed at a uh, study that was published in Cosmopolitan Act magazine that showed that, um, that women who fought back were much less likely to be injured or at least could possibly escape. Um, at any rate, there are some more than some two million defensive uses of a gun in this country every year. It's hard to get the numbers um, because most people who uh, use a gun in self-defense do not report it to the police. Um, the people who um, want to say that, they're, that you're going to hurt yourself or it's almost unusual to have a gun help anybody only count a, a defensive use if you actually kill the person who's attacking you. Chase them away, shoot them, and not kill them. They don't count that. And the police don't count defensive uses um, either. So there's it's hard for people to actually get the number unless you have some kind of anonymous survey, but there are extraordinary numbers. And most of the time, you just have to actually show the gun. You don't need to do anything with it, and people will back off. Um, at, any, at any event, um, the District of Columbia versus Heller is the Supreme Court case <clears throat> in 2008, which is this first decade of it, celebrating this year, in which the Supreme Court actually found that there was an individual right to have weapons and as they put it, those weapons in common use for self-defense and other lawful purposes. So you can have a handgun in your home. Um, and uh, this case was important because it was the first time that the Supreme Court actually was very specific that this was an individual right and not just a collective right, like the right to be protected by the police, where it protects everybody, but it doesn't really protect. Um, 
any one person. And I'd just like to tell you what this law was. Some of you may know it. Uh, if you lived in, uh, live in uh, the district um, that went into effect in 1976, and it was in effect for more than 20 years, um, no one who lived in the Washington was allowed to have a handgun in their home. If you had a long gun, it had to be kept disassembled and locked. And you were not allowed to take that gun from one room to another within your own home. That was bearing the arm. If someone broke in, you still could not put that gun together. And I, I was one of those who was able to get a seat for the Supreme Court argument on this. And at that point, one of the judges, justices, I think it was Justice Robert, said to the Solicitor General who was arguing on behalf of, of the district, he said, you mean that in the middle of the night when it's dark and someone breaks in, I have to somehow put a gun together, but you're not even going to allow me to do that? And the Solicitor General kind of backed off. Um, but that was the law. And, and the uh, District of Columbia versus Heller actually overturned that as unconstitutional because it violated people's right to have a weapon in order to protect themselves and, and their own home and also in that um, decision to protect yourself when you're going out. You have a right to keep and to bear uh, a firearm. Since then, <clears throat> the number of guns in this country has really skyrocketed, and particularly during the Obama era. Whenever there was any effort to have more gun control, people went out and bought a gun. Um, but the amazing thing about it is that this great increase in the number of firearms that people own has not resulted in um, a, a greater number of homicides, but, and in fact, um, quite the opposite. But what, I, what is on the screen, your map, uh, talks about shall issue, and I just want to briefly go into that. No, it's a bit technical, but it's important. Um, there are different, first of all, there were a lot of states that didn't allow anybody to carry gun outside the house, and because of the Heller case, um, they all had to agree to it. However, they have different rules about whether you can actually have a right to actually carry a gun. Um, there are some that are discretionary, and those are the ones that you see in that light tan. Those are the only ones left. Discretionary means that you have to persuade a, the police department that you have some need to carry a gun that day. If you live in a, in a dangerous area, you have to walk through some uh, dangerous area because of your work, that doesn't matter. It has to be just that time. There's been a case recently in Maryland, which is one of those states, um, and the um, Supreme Court didn't take it, and so the lower court upheld the idea that you only had a right to have a gun in your house, and it's still up to the police whether you can carry it um, outside of your home. <clears throat> I used to live in Massachusetts for many years, and in Massachusetts, Massachusetts is one of the discretionary states. In Massachusetts, there were sheriffs that bragged that they never gave anybody a right, you know, <laughs> never. Um, in a place like New York, um, the people who are important, who have a lot of money, they can do it. They can get a, a permit to carry, whereas, you know, people living in a poor part of town or who are worried cannot. So discretionary is truly discretionary and very subjective. Um, shall issue is different. If you have a shall issue state, that means that in that state, anyone who uh, 
is a, a law-abiding person, has a right to own a gun, um, and goes through a particular procedure. Maybe you have to go through a, a, um, a course for a certain number of hours or something like that, but fulfill some standard requirement, must be issued a right to carry a gun. And in the last few years, you can see all those red states, all those red states are shall issue. Thousands of people have gotten a right to carry a gun in those states. You can go from Florida to Washington State and never go through a state that is discretionary. The ones that are darker, sort of a dark maroon, and this isn't quite up to date, um, uh, are states in which they have what they call constitutional carry. If you have a right to have a gun, you have a right to carry it. Um, at the time that this map was completed, there were just a few. Vermont had had that rule for ages. I don't know if Sanders is going to try and change it. This state has been changing. But at any rate, it, it, Vermont had no gun regulations whatsoever. Um, at any rate, there are now 13 states. So just in the last couple of years, more and more states have shifted to this constitutional carry. But I think it's interesting to see that map because you can see how few states still insist on this discretionary rule so that only certain people at certain times can um, get to uh, carry a gun. I have a, a, a friend whose daughter uh, was attacked and, and just barely escaped being raped who lives in Maryland. And Maryland would not have allowed this young woman to carry anything really, uh, any firearm to protect herself, um, and still doesn't. Um, this is the death rate, uh, non-suicide, uh, of gun deaths. And there, uh, we hear a lot about mass killing and, you know, um, terrible uh, atrocities. However, um, in the last years since the 90s, the murder rate from guns has gone down precipitously. Um, the non it says that red line is California. And apparently, when this map was done, um, it was because California was having this third three strike rule: three strikes and you're out, go in jail, <laughs> you're out of circulation. Um, so I think they put a line there showing that that had gone down. But basically, um, the firearm deaths have gone down precipitously. Now I'd like to contrast what's going on in this country. Remember, we have all these people getting guns, being able to carry them from our own defense. And um, in Virginia, where I live, it's a, uh, a shall issue state, and I certainly don't feel endangered, endangered walking about in that. Um, Great Britain, uh, which basically uh, gave us this right, it was one of the rights of Englishmen at the time of the uh, revolution and the time the Bill of Rights was drafted, Change. They used to have a completely free right to have guns, and there were no rules and regulations basically limiting it. Um, that didn't start until 1920 with this Firearms Act, and that was after World War I, and they were afraid of a, a Bolshevik revolution, and they had all these men coming back from World War I who were worried about, they were worried about their um, having been kind of embittered and, and, um, and disturbed by the, that awful war. Um, so they passed this Firearms Act. Now the idea of it was that you had to basically register to get a gun. And you had to go to the police and they had to verify that you were a suitable person to have it. 
and that you had a good reason to have guns. And people were in Parliament were assured there's no problem. Um, but what happened was that all the police in Britain are under the Home Secretary. And the Home Secretary's office was sending out classified documents to the police departments defining what was a good reason to have a gun. And even at the very beginning, the good reason was you lived in some remote area. Um, it kept ratcheting down what was a good reason to have a gun. And by 1969, it was never a good reason to have a gun for your self-defense. And even banks were not allowed to have anybody armed to protect the money within. <laughs> so they, and this was not known to the public. It had never been debated in the parliament. Um, but it, just that simple law had gotten more and more restrictive. The 1953 one is, in some ways, even more obnoxious, I think. In 1953, I guess they were worried about juvenile delinquents. At any rate, this Prevention of Crime Act ruled that you couldn't carry anything that was an offensive weapon in a public place. Now, what was an offensive weapon? Anything you might carry to actually protect yourself if attacked was automatically offensive. If you were carrying an umbrella with that notion that you would use it, that was having an offensive weapon. And um, of course, Parliament you know, objected. There was one of the members of Parliament who said that there's a woman who works for us, and every night she has to cross this lonely heath, and she has taken to carrying a knitting needle in her pocketbook. And one night, she was attacked by a young man, and she stabbed him with a knitting needle on a tender part of his body. Now, is she not going to be able to protect herself? And the government responded, well, she shouldn't have to do that. Society will protect her. Right. So now you cannot carry anything um, in, um, in Britain to protect yourself. Um, no chemical sprays, nothing. Um, but I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit further. But um, at any rate, 19... 98, they confiscated handguns after there was this, uh, you know, atrocious mass murder of little children in Scotland. Um, when they were debating that, and of course they knew where the handguns were because they were all registered. They say sometimes the NRA is, is paranoid about that. No, I mean, when they know where they are, they can get them back. Um, if there were two attempts to uh, have an amendment to that rule, one would have allowed the uh, British Olympic uh, target shooting team to keep their guns to practice. But no, they have to go to Switzerland or France to practice. They've not been nearly as good ever since. And the Second Amendment was to allow handicapped shooters to have a gun because it was one of those sports where they could actually compete on an equal level. But no, it was zero tolerance. So all of these handguns, some of them you know, um, souvenirs from World War One or Two or antique weapons were confiscated from their owners and destroyed or sent to sent to museums. And it's interesting though that within ten years, the number of crimes with handguns had actually doubled, because all those people who had registered their handguns were not about to do anything illegal with them. So it really was not very um, not very effective. Now, um, what to do if you are a woman in Britain? Um, there's a website which you can check on Google called Ask the Police. Um, and the Ask the Police website, people wrote in and they and asked 
well, you know, when I'm out shopping or, you know, walking, what legal device can I have to protect yourself? Actually, and, and the BBC had written that you could use your keys or a handbag uh, or a briefcase. Um, the only legal device, th this is the police saying, the only legal defense, defense product you can carry is a rape alarm. Now, I mean, I kept trying to think, what could you carry that you could use to protect yourself that wasn't offensive? And maybe a, a, a whistle or an alarm. So this makes a very loud noise. This is the only thing that's legal. Apparently, there was some possibility that, there, that a particular um, stain that you could squirt on the person um, might be legal, but as long as you didn't get it in his eyes and hurt him. If you hurt your attacker, in other words, he, maybe by some stroke of luck you get him down, you must not hit him again because then you are guilty of assault. You then must kind of run away. Um, if you are attacked, people have been taught that they are not to intervene. The professionals will handle it. The police will handle it. And so the first thing they, people used to be told, according to the BBC, was call the police. So instead of calling help, which you would think would be your natural inclination, you're supposed to say, call the police. Um, but now they don't even say that. Now you're supposed to yell fire because, <laughs> believe it or not, more people will pay attention if you sell, yell fire and help or call the police. You know, they might think maybe there's danger to them. So that, that's what um, people are advised to do. Um, it's sad because it, there are all of these people who are really afraid to go out. They're afraid, you know, to, be, to go out in the dark. And I, I don't have time to go into it, but, um, but they have uh, nobody who's under 18 gets incarcerated presumably unless they murdered somebody. So they get warned, and then they can come back and do things again until they get beyond 18, if they're called children or under 18. Um, so they're not really helping people much. And I don't know if any of you remember that in 2010, there were a lot of riots in London and other large cities in Britain. And um, there was arson and, and people being beaten up and people leaping from buildings to avoid the uh, being burned alive in the buildings, and the police uh, did very little to, to stop it. Amazon had a 1,500% order from the UK for American baseball bats. As I say, I like to say, it's not they were taking up the game, you know? They just wanted something to protect themselves. Um, it's really, really very sad, but they, they like to think that we're a cowboy country, and they are very civilized. Um, um, at any rate, um, to conclude, um, we are really very fortunate to have this right to be armed for our, our self-defense. You don't have to be armed for your self-defense. The beauty of it is nobody knows who is. And in fact, in America, there are very, very few is what they would call live burglaries, because burglars are more afraid of armed homeowners than they are of the police. Whereas in Britain, they're just as happy to have you home that they prefer it, because then your alarms are off. And if you harm the burglar, you can be in trouble. So sometimes burglars have sort of sat down with the person <laughs> and said, look, you know, this is what I want. You know, just stay, stay aside. Um, just one more story, because I don't want to. Um, 
go too long here, but I want to give you a chance to ask any questions. But there, there are a couple of, of these incidents that just make an American, you know, shake their heads. There was a man who had a, um, a plastic artificial gun, and it looked like a real gun. And two burglars came into his house, and he pulled this fake gun on them and held them while he called the police. When the police came, they arrested him for putting people in fear with a toy gun. I mean, so there's really very little people can do. We're fortunate that we have this right. Um, it's enshrined in our Second Amendment. It's not easily changed, much to the um, distress of a lot of people who are out there working hard to see if they can't get rid of it or uh, amend it into a meaninglessness. Um, but I should say that the District of Columbia versus Heller, that key case, was passed by five to four. That was a five to four decision. And there are some justices who dissented, like um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who have called for it to be reversed. So all those people that are worried about Roe and other uh, cases, here's one that could be reversed if um, you know, if another judge got on there and changed their mind. So fortunately, you know, so far so good. Um, we have this decision and in a follow-up case uh, for Chicago, uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago, Chicago had virtually the same law as Washington did. Um, the right to, um, of individuals to be armed was spread to the entire country. It had to be incorporated and go uh, in order to uh, effective in the entire country. Washington, of course, it, uh, has tried very hard to thwart this rule and came up with a very complicated way in which people could maybe get guns. Um, and, and, and so there have been subsequent um, court cases about that. You can carry a gun in Washington, but what they did was that you can't carry it within 100 yards of every university, high school, middle school, nursery school, public or private, Public park. There are so many. I thought if you had a map of Washington, you did circles around all those places. There would probably be no way you could get from here to there, you know, without violating that. But at any rate, it's sort of a continuing struggle. But so far, uh, we've managed to do it, and I think it's one that's extremely important for women, because all other things being said, the gun truly is an equalizer and can be used at a distance, so that you can kind of protect yourself. Thank you very much. Yes, I mean. Thank you so much, Joyce. What a great review uh, of all that. Let me ask first. Okay. I remember when they confiscated the guns in England. And people handed them in. A lot of people. I can't ever conceive of that happening in America. Can you? Actually, it, it, I can't either. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, that the police would want to go door to door asking for people's guns. We don't have a... Um, full registry, although when you buy a gun, you have to get this background check so that the FBI has this list. Uh, but I should say that there are two areas where they did try and confiscate guns. One was LA and one was in Connecticut. And I was going to say you'd be happy to know. Americans being Americans, nobody handed them in. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you wonder about the difference with the Brits. Maybe socialism makes them all well, they think it's more civilized not to have them. Right. Their tea. Okay, <laughs> right. um, now if you'll raise your hand. Uh, we have a microphone here if you'll give your name um, and uh, affiliation. I saw a hand in the back there. Um, I'm going to let you call them. Okay, thank you. 
Oh, thank you. Actually, it's in that article about me, that profile. I have an old shotgun, and it is missing a clip, so it's pretty useless. <laughs> I'm not a gunny. I, it's, for me, it's the principle of the thing. I don't really feel people should have to be victims. Um, and so I, there was one point at which there were some muggings in my area, and I thought about it. Um, if you have one, you have to be prepared to use it uh, and trained. Um, and you know, so far, I, I haven't felt the need. But it's a good question. I feel a little ashamed. <laughs> I'm not even very expert on the different calibers. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, oh. Women, oh, thank you. I've been reading that women in the inner cities, African-American women in particular, have been purchasing many more guns, and that uh, there is some data to support that there are fewer you know, problems because they are able to defend themselves. I don't have specifics, but I wonder if you would address that, because we have Black Lives Matter, except in Chicago in the South Side. And I find the hypocrisy is just astounding to me. And so if you have women who are trying to protect their families, and they're probably single moms, most of them, yes. you know, where, where is the, you know, the support for these women to raise their children? And instead you have these women marching, you know, oops, marching um, against guns, you know, as if that would, as that, that would uh, save lives. Actually, I should say that one of the women who was on the original Heller case as it went through was a black woman who lived here in Washington and had um, been reporting drug uh, sales on her corner and these, to the police, and these people knew where she lived, and they said they were going to come and get her. So, I mean, obviously, she felt really worried. In Chicago, McDonald, who, Otis McDonald, who was the named um, plaintiff on the, in this case um, was a, a black man in his 70s, and he had been robbed several times. So there's a real need, and women are buying guns. And uh, I had some statistic, of, I guess it's the last two or three years, something like 77% more women are buying um, handguns for their own defense and carrying them. Um, and, I, and it is a shame because um, it's those cities and the inner cities where it's most needed. If you had discretionary laws, those people would never get them. Um, but um, they, they claim, for instance, here in, in Washington, they claim, well, we would be fine if it weren't for Virginia, right? Virginia has you know, a right to carry, and no problem. It's just that Virginia doesn't have that crime rate. <laughs> if guns were the problem, then we would have the same kind of, you know, uh, of crime rate that um, they have here, so it's it's a shame. And one of the judges in um, the Heller case, uh, Breyer, who was a dissenter, uh, looking at the 20 years of the ban in Washington and noticing in his, in his dissent that Washington, compared to 49 other cities, was worse after the 20 years <laughs> than it was before the 20 years of the ban. But he said, people should be allowed to. Oop, I keep. That's why you saw that picture of me swinging my hand. People should be allowed to, the legislature should be allowed to do what they want. This is what they want to do, fine, even if it doesn't work. So, um, you know, I, you sort of feel that the people that are so intent on um, depriving other people of guns um, 
have almost a, a sort of a religious belief that somehow that would be safer. It, but the government really cannot protect people, and it wouldn't be, I mean, to my mind, it certainly wouldn't be safer um, to disarm people uh, and just leave you know, everyone in the hands of the government and those people that pay no attention to the law. Right. Despite the restraining order being a powerful um, statistic, and you, you mentioned um, that you know, women with uh, women uh, gun owners had over you know fifty percent saw yes. um, more pain fever and lifelong life lifelong fear something that's in Chapter Thirty Ten in the opening the oh. fastest growing segment of gun ownership is is women. Yes. Um, I would love to be able to get more about that because I think often women uh, won't sign a study, you know, maybe on gun ownership if they think, you know, whoever is doing the polling might be, um, you know, more biased. But if you have cosmopolitan, shows you can defend yourself, you're more likely to survive a more pain or pain culture. You know, if we can look to uh, if this is just evidence. Yeah, I I hadn't actually known about it until I started to get into preparation for this talk, and apparently there was you know it was a study of I think 1.2 million women they claimed. Um, it's very hard to get people to um, take a poll and a survey and admit that they have used a gun to defend themselves because they're really afraid that you know some of these guns are not legal. Um, there's a, um, a website about women who use guns to protect themselves. And, and one of the women who used a gun really carried one. And she worked in, I think, she had to cross into Maryland with that gun to go to work. So she never reported anything because it would have been illegal for her to be carrying it in Maryland. But you know, she had a, a walk along the river to get to work. And one morning there was this you know, bulky guy standing there with a knife. And it was only her having a, that gun and showing it that made him back off. And she didn't report it. And according to her, about a couple months later, there was a woman who was attacked and killed by this guy. And the police eventually got him. But, you know, it, she was really able to, to protect herself. It's interesting that they, that Cosmopolitan had it. And, and actually, um, there was on the, web discussion about this and uh, on Google, there was someone saying, where did they find these numbers? Oh, blah, blah. I don't know. I mean, I thought that it was really interesting. There are um, victimization studies, and these are big surveys that just go out to everybody. Anything that is done by the government, people are not going to say <laughs> if they think they'll be in trouble. And the police do not record um, self-defense uh, issues. They never, they don't keep any record of it. So it's very hard to get to that number. And there are supposedly maybe two million people who have used a gun in self-defense here in this country in a year. But this, the um, surveys are all over the place. Um, the people who would, who feel that guns are no use 
only want to count the times you actually used a gun to kill somebody. Most of the time, that isn't the case. Most of the time, you just need to show that you've got it um, to be, you know, and that whoever wants to attack you will back off. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of minimizing the numbers to uh, just count people you've actually killed. Yes. So um, I don't know a ton about the different types of guns, but I do uphold the Second Amendment from a constitutional viewpoint. However, whenever I bring this up to people, a lot of um, people I know that um, are more liberal, they tend to say, well, you don't need two, like more than one gun or um, you don't need that type of gun to defend yourself. And they have an issue with the type or how many you're, you have. So how would you best respond to that by still saying that it is an individual right to have that many? Yes. Um, one of the um, expedients that they have done now, uh, recently, some states, is to try to limit the number of uh, the size of a gun clip, you know, so that you can only carry what, seven bullets in a clip that holds ten um, and, and the fact is that you might not actually aim all that well the first time. <laughs> and that woman who saved her, herself by you know, showing a gun to this potential rapist had a very cheap gun that she knew would misfire on the second shot. So she was only likely to get one <laughs> shot off. Um, people collect guns like they collect other things. So a lot of people do target shooting and sport shooting and hunting. The slippery slope issue with these rules is the so-called assault weapon, because an assault weapon can be anything. It can be just as long as it looks scary. And we had, uh, what, 10 years of an assault weapon ban. And what made a, a, a rifle an assault weapon was if it had this little handle coming down, you know, to brace it, and a scope. There were just sort of cosmetic features. And I think in, in uh, California, I don't know whether they passed this, they had an assault weapon ban that would have basically included a lot of, of semi-automatic rifles that people use, that are millions of, for hunting as assault weapons. So you have to be really careful what they're going to define that way. But I don't know that answers. I mean, there are some people that simply collect guns. Um, but, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, people who have grown up with them tend not to worry about it, you know, they just sort of take for granted that you have guns in the house and they're, and they're much less likely to misuse a gun than someone who has not. They know how to, you know, treat it respectfully. Yes? Have you had any discussions with <clears throat> civil libertarians about the whole gun registry uh, issue and what that actually means to us as a country when we have this gun registry uh, at, at the national level? Yes, um, I should say I've had lots of conversations. This is such a pleasure not being pitted against somebody who is going to refute everything I say the best that they can. <laughs> um, in some ways, the, this national background check is a kind of registry because they know, you know who at least has applied to get a particular gun. They don't know how many you have, and, the, and part of the rule is that the um, records are to be uh, destroyed, uh, you know, they're not supposed to keep these, although one, ne you know, one never knows. Um, but, um, but yeah, they feel, well, uh, cars are registered, 
you know, you have to be able to get a license to have a car. Why shouldn't you have to get a license to have a gun? But cars are not guaranteed. They're not a constitutional right to have a car. Um, this is something that's actually in our Constitution. So, yeah, they feel that, you know, it's just what they call it, sensible gun regulation. Um, but the, the English example, to me, is a perfect ex example of why there is a, a serious worry about that. Because once um, they know where all the guns are, they can take them away. And, of course, there have been a lot of examples of, you know, Nazi Germany and other places where, where people were forcibly disarmed. And then they say, well, you know, in case that there's a, you know, violent takeover, what good would your little handgun do? But um, it can cause a whole lot more trouble <laughs> to someone trying to, you know, uh, get rid of all your rights and take over. Um, so that, you know, I think that, that there's still, you know, obviously people are going to feel that it's paranoid to not want to register, but there's a living proof that that leads to some, you know, confiscations. Um, Kentucky began to, on the very local level, pass right-to-work laws when the Kentucky legislature would not do that, and it was effective. Have you thought at all about the ability of communities in states like California and Maryland and New York uh, to actually pass their own laws permitting citizens to uh, own firearms and carry? Well, there have been um, some local laws. I mean, one of the, the issues that I find concerning is that some of our appeals court judges will not uphold Heller. And um, there was a case, uh, often these towns go the other way, um, Highland Park in Illinois, um, which um, banned all uh, so-called assault weapons, including all of these very common guns used for hunting. And when that came, was appealed um, to the appellate court in Il uh, for Illinois, that area, um, the judges, who had found no problem with the, with the Chicago law, by the way, um, felt that, well, whatever Heller says, the important thing is that people should feel comfortable. And if it makes them feel more comfortable, fine. And the Supreme Court did not take that case. So if they don't take a case, these lower court rulings stand. I have been working on what to do about judges <laughs> who really ignore the Supreme Court, you know. And um, there, there also are some towns that, that go the other way. I don't know how successful they would be in California as a um, a, a difficult issue, although I do know there's a, been a recent case with Hawaii, which still falls in this Ninth Circuit, uh, wasn't allowing people to have a gun, carry a gun outside of the home. And, and lo and behold, the judges on the Ninth Circuit actually reversed that. Uh, so there, sometimes those things happen. Mentioned that that if towns can okay guns, they can also okay to confiscate them. Right. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword. I'm wondering with the school shootings and whatnot. What's not really discussed much in the media or any place else is that it wasn't just the guns that caused damage. It was the fact that people were standing around the the garters of the public right. standing around, uh, not doing anything. 
And I think that that needs to be kind of addressed a little bit more directly. Probably not as many children. I mean, it's a guess, uh, you know. But I think that there is more than just uh, individuals having or not having firearms to protect themselves. If it is a public, if, if the public is going to be protected, then the public ought to be protected, which means that the people who are trained to do it ought to do their job. I was really distressed by that that Florida shooting because not only did the police know that this man was a danger, they had visited his house, what, 39 times or something? How many? And they never reported him. He, they knew he was armed. And they, despite going to the house all those times, they never disarmed him. Um, and then the police hid behind their cars while the shooting was going on. And I think that, that that the media was happier to sort of dwell on these students who were protesting and guns, we should get rid of guns, and really didn't concentrate on the first responders who did not respond. You know, if you have people who are supposed to be protecting you and they, they're hiding um, while the shooting goes on until everything's quiet, um, you know, there's, you can't depend on them. I thought that was, I thought it was really remiss of the media to not give that more attention. Um, and I, I, I think that Florida has tried to do more, but, um, but you're right, I thought that was really terrible. I mean, it, the fact that the police knew about this guy, I mean, what would it take? How many times? One of the problems, too, is that, and it doesn't get a lot of mention, that back in the 70s, the um, rules for incarcerating someone in a mental facility who was at danger, committing them against their will, got changed. These facilities got dismantled, and there were supposed to be substituted um, community centers for them. Um, but the community centers have never really materialized properly. There aren't that many beds for people. The ACLU felt that you know privacy rights trump somebody who might be dangerous and had need to be committed. So we really gotten into a situation where there are not enough facilities for people who are a danger to themselves and others. And, um, and that needs to be addressed. And I know Congress has had a couple of bills uh, trying to do that. Um, and there are families that are really distressed and have no place um, you know, to put some child or a relative who is a danger and simply needs protection. Instead, they're loose with their meds, you know, and they take them or they don't take them. So uh, you know, that's, that's a, a, I think, a more important issue for the nation to solve and not, you know, so sexy and simple, but it needs to be done. They call it deinstitutionalization. Yeah. If I can ask one final question. Okay. Forgive me. Yeah. You know I love this question. <laughs> Benedict Arnold, the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, the politics of the time were so rotten and dirty. As bad, if not worse, than what goes on today. Would you just share what inspired you write this wonderful book about his life. I thought he was an extraordinarily fascinating individual. I mean, the fact was that before he changed sides, he was a great hero. And as he, you know, I, I have a quotation at the beginning of the book in which he says that, you know, um, that we will, that posterity will benefit from his accomplishments in this war. Um, and, and we have. I mean, he was the decisive uh, officer uh, at Saratoga, the uh,
general in charge, Gates, really disliked him and confined Arnold to his tent. And, Gen and Gates spent the whole uh, of that battle in his tent where he couldn't even see the battlefield. Um, and, and it was actually debating the merits of the revolution with a wounded British officer while the battle raged. And Arnold burst from his tent, got on a horse, and with no command whatsoever, led the victorious charge. I mean, he's extraordinarily interesting. And I thought, you know, it, it's very easy to, to dismiss someone as greedy, self-serving. Um, but that doesn't answer why someone who risked his life over and over you know, used his money to pay his own men when Congress didn't, would change sides. So I, I, I just thought he was, you know, extraordinary and had done a lot of exciting things, which made it a long book to write because there was so much that he had done. Um, and, you know, I hope that I have, you know, sort of fleshed it out. But it does get you into the more sort of seamy side of what was going on. There was a shootout in Philadelphia between the radical patriots and the moderate patriots. And you, those are not things that end up in the history books. Thank you. Congress so skeptical of the military oh. men. And it's, it's a great book. You have to read it. Well, we have a couple of gifts for you here to thank you so much for a wonderful talk. We have our Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute limited edition coffee mug <laughs> with thank that you. famous saying. No good deed goes unpunished, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Said, I, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> little tote bag to put all your other gifts Oh, thank in. you right. very much. And from Heritage Foundation, uh, thank you for the really inspiring address today. Um, our Heritage Guide to the Constitution. I know oh, that's fantastic. what's inspired your yes. work. And, um, we really appreciate your joining us today. Oh, and invite you, you all much. to join us for lunch. We'll be back thank in um, the Shaw Conference Center where we can continue the conversation. Good. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.